Chapter Thirty Nine, Part One of Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arlene Stebbins. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume Two by Moncure Conway. Chapter Thirty Nine, Part One. In 1870 I was looking forward to a happy vacation, the main pleasure of which was to be the passion play at Oberammergau. But the year was to be marked by a great passion tragedy. In the middle of July I received by cable a request from Manton Marble of the New York World to be his war correspondent on the French side. I consented to act through August. I tried to reach the French army near Metz by way of Belgium. The first note of war had desolated Ostend. In quiet old Bruges and other towns drums were beating and soldiers drilling. On July 24 the London Times printed by Bismarck's authority a treaty proposed to him by France, involving the absorption of Belgium. The Grand Duke Vladimir of Russia was enjoying King Leopold's hospitality in Brussels, and his serene face was in contrast with that of the King. There was ill-feeling toward the king because the stock of a national bank had been removed to Antwerp. Also it was rumored that the king and queen had sent their jewelry and treasure to London for safety. I saw the tall monarch with his big nose, heavy beard, and swarthy face pass before his troops without exciting enthusiasm. But later his lovely wife with her soft eye and pure complexion received loud plaudits on her drive. The American minister was then at Spa, and our consul being always out, I sought advice of the French minister. He informed me that France was entirely open, as before, to travellers, with exception of the immediate circle of military occupation. The preliminaries of war repeated those in America. Every hour rumours of fights that proved fictitious, of desertions from this side or that, of the romantic female spy of immense bribes refused or accepted by statesmen, of secret treaties. For one glad hour cheers rent the air because some mediator had secured peace at the last moment. It shone like a rainbow, like a rainbow vanished. I made my way to Paris slowly. The city was in a state of enthusiasm. There was a childlike confidence in the chassepot, that could kill at five or six hundred meters farther than the needle-gun, and faith in the supernatural mitrailleuse was religious. The theatres were crowded, and in every one appeared some finely draped La France, bearing the tricolor, always amid the choral Marseillaise. I went to the Grand Opera, where Massaniello was performed. All the most rebellious lines were cheered wildly, at the end, when the Marseillaise was called for, there was tumult because the orchestra did not strike up at once. But the manager had prepared a fine surprise. The stage was presently filled with a genuine troupe brought from a neighboring station. Then all shouted out the revolutionary song. The beautiful La France was heroically draped. I went to my hotel remembering a sentence I heard from Emerson. The French will have things theatrical. God will have things real. I did not feel enthusiastic for this Jehovistic realism. 
how much pleasanter it would be all round if the conflict could be limited to fine parades of pretty girls and tricolours and red lights and tableaux vivants instead of those horrible tableaux morts of the real field while getting out my passport and other certificates to go to the front i encountered my old friend marat halstead of the cincinnati commercial and we became comrades we started on july thirty one for metz and for most of the way had a compartment to ourselves but at length a fine-looking gentleman entered we went on talking about old times without noticing the frenchman who however opened his coat revealed his official riband and asked if we were going to metz we explained our purpose and showed our passports but he warned us of disappointment at metz we would be unable to approach the camps or to learn any news and would be necessarily under surveillance despite this discouragement halstead determined to go on but i alighted at the next station where i got a train to strasbourg there everything was so open that i made up my mind that the military commander there mcmahon must consider himself on a picnic early in the afternoon of the next day appeared halstead coming fortunately to my hotel he had a dismal story to tell of metz it was hard to find a lodging at last i was conducted to a hotel where after considerable persuasion the landlord consented to be answerable for my remaining for one night only early next morning officers were at my door and after careful examination of my papers said i might remain for a time inside the fortification one step beyond was death this amounted to being corked up in a bottle i could not move without being watched one individual was met at every step the people there are furiously patriotic and eager to show it there is anxiety lest an assassin should be lurking about dread of spies and special dread of correspondence i was not satisfied with my bottled condition i decanted myself we were surprised at the freedom with which we moved about strasbourg we visited the suburban camp Kel, of the many-coloured turcos most of them however walking rather tipsily grisette on arm and bliss on their shiny faces there was a sensation one day over the arrest of a woman found on the french shore of the rhine where she had been set down by a german boat which swiftly glided back the operation was observed the officers stationed near the scene found a woman closely veiled the veil was withdrawn and a heavily bearded face was revealed the spy in woman's clothes was hurried to the guard-house where only men were lodged but this prisoner's clamorous alarm at being left there all night caused an investigation she turned out to be a famous bearded woman exhibiting at mayence when the war broke out as she was a native of france the germans had carried her out of their lines when halstead left metz a telegram about him left also and at dawn august two he was awakened and his papers overhauled we found during the day that we were suspected of writing for journals wherein we were sustained by the sweet consciousness of guilt it was difficult to imagine the function of a french correspondent under the circumstances edmund about was there in strasbourg representing the figaro and i have little doubt that one of his charming novels chiefly occupied his time not being willing to let my friend manton marble be unrepresented altogether i resolved to go to the germans we were astonished at the ease with which we got to basel 
just before reaching the frontier a family of poor people were set down on the roadside with their bundles far away from any house but our passports were not inquired after i was afterwards assured by a french official that the exact facts concerning every person on the train were known to the authorities before it left Strasbourg. The excitement in Switzerland was intense, and indeed I was often reminded here, as in Belgium, of the divided condition of Maryland and Kentucky in the Civil War. After we had passed the frontier, a Swiss fellow-traveller said, "'You see, sir, we Swiss love freedom. That is our bond with Germany.' then we have german blood in our veins so you will find that the working people in switzerland are not fond of the french dynasty but our rich men oh our rich men make all their money out of france do you see those magnificent houses we were now in basel the men in them own millions of money and all in francs and napoleons they are for france there was continual danger that there might be an outbreak. There had just been held in Basel a congrès extraordinaire of the International League of Peace and Liberty. The chief centre of this league was in Basel. As I took them more seriously than my comrade, I left him to other objects of interest and sought out the peacemakers. I found it difficult to discover the capital of the United States of Europe, of which wayfarers had never heard, Nevertheless, it was discovered, being simply the neat little parlour of a Swiss working-man, who had begun the work of union by marrying a brilliant Frenchwoman. This lady appeared to me as one who was high-born, and had made a marriage similar to those of royal personages, that is, for the sake of the European situation. I soon found, however, that her husband was a man of ability and worth. He hastily summoned for my benefit the leaders of the Basel branch, which bore the name of the International Association of Working Men. This was because the general Ligue Internationale de la Paix de la Liberté frightened some of the working class by their extreme radicalism, especially by their disposition to do away with old-fashioned ideas of marriage. The lady was eloquent even in English, and must have been the chief speaker at their assemblies. I wrote down at my hotel the subjoined notes of her conversation. There is not even a grain of truth in the charges made against us, or against our members in London and Paris. We generally hate Napoleon, but assassination is not our plan. We should be glad if every throne in Europe and every aristocracy were overthrown, and we would join in a revolution against them. But to kill this or that man, however odious, would not serve our purpose. Until the people are ripe, the death of Napoleon would but vacate the seat for some other Napoleon, and it would be the same with Bismarck, whom we also hate. Our dependence is on the press, that is, on the education of the people to know their rights, and to appreciate their power to secure their rights. Some of us belong to the bourgeoisie, but the vast majority of our six or seven thousand members are poor working people, very poor yet they put together their little means and give them freely only for two purposes one the support of our newspapers the other to support the families of labourers on strike in any part of europe we are all freethinkers we have nothing to do with the churches but have a sunday gathering where freethinkers lecture and debate 
The President, J. H. Fry, gave me a good photograph of the five leaders who were all present. Volkart, Treasurer, Schmidli, Standard-Bearer, Starkey, Secretary, Fetterly, Vice-President. Behind them in the picture is their banner, the device a triangle with rays, above it written, Keine Flichten ohne Rechte, and beneath, Keine Rechte ohne Flichten. I was sorry the handsome lady was not in the picture. They also gave me a copy of the appeal put forth in all European languages by the recent International Congress. Above it is their motto, Civis pacem para liberatem. Appel au peuple de l'Europe. A horrible, barbarous war has been declared between two great civilized peoples. We cannot prevent it. It will take its course. Meanwhile, we have regarded it as our most sacred duty to proclaim anew, on the immediate frontiers of the two belligerent nations, that such wars, which have not for their end the liberation of peoples, but the satisfaction of dynastic ambitions, can never be avoided until the peoples shall possess free self-government and decide their own lot. In this supreme moment, when, it is said, the only word to be spoken must come from the canon, we will add one also for right, for reason, and for humanity. We make our appeal to the people, that in the face of burning villages and smoking battlefields, in the face of the frightful butchery made by new engines of destruction, amid the ruins, the miseries, the crimes of all sorts which make up the hideous cortege of war, they shall swear with us to labor to conquer for themselves such forms of government as shall render for ever impossible the renewal of these fratricidal strifes, and shall secure, in conformity with these principles of our League, the arrival of the United States of Europe. In the name of the Congress, Jules Barney, President, Armand Goeg, Vice-President, John Rolandet, Secretary-General, J. Gerber, President of the Basel Committee, J. J. Boney, Secretary, Madame Mary Goeg, in the name of women. This proclamation was laughed at by those who were leading France into war with a light heart. But before a year had passed they were appealing to that same international society to try and lower the demands of the German conqueror. That famous phrase of Olivier about the light heart had seemed at Strasbourg to pervade all the air. There was universal laughter, universal sipping of absinthe, and the music-halls were in their glory. At Freiburg a death-like silence reigned. Halstead and I were the only guests in a hotel generally filled with summer tourists. The cathedral was silent. Its famous organ found no listener. The peasant women in their yellow stove-pipe hats or bow-knot head-dresses sat desolate in the market-place beside untouched pyramids of fruit. Finding that we must wait until after midnight before travelling farther, I went to visit a family connected with a Cincinnati friend, Mr. Garlicks, and passed the evening with them. The head of the family was a distinguished citizen and scholar, and the ladies refined and gracious. But they were in dread of the ferocious Turcos. The accounts were so exaggerated that I made a note of them for my studies in demonology. The demons of the Black Forest may partly have been developed in imaginative terrors of threatening and unknown invaders. As we sat on the veranda in the evening sipping our wine, 
I gave an account of my visit to the Turcos' camp, and my report of their merry ways and their countenances, indicating less cruelty than those of the whites, somewhat soothed their fears. The chief monument in Freiburg is that of old Schwarz, discoverer of gunpowder. Its bas-relief represent him in his laboratory, and one of them shows him starting back in terror at the explosion of a mixture. But how would the old chemist have started back had he seen all that was to come of his damnable invention? What would he have said had he seen that cloud of smoke taking shape as the genius of destruction, and knowing that it would hover over the happy homes of those who honoured him with this monument? My credentials and the Freiburg gentleman secured for us the confidence of a commander at the station. We had several hours to wait for a train to Karlsruhe, and sent telegrams to our wives and our papers. The amusements of Freiburg were closed, but none of them could have been so entertaining as the large military telegraph room on the station platform. Its walls were glass, and we saw inside long past midnight more than a hundred busy operators, all young women. One or two fine-looking women moved about from point to point for supervision, but no man approached nearer than to convey authorized despatches through the wicket. Gazing in at these damsels working like bees in their hive, I felt as if I were seeing amid the desolation of war one little oasis of civilization. The commander told me that in such service they employed only women. I inferred that it was because the young men were all bearing arms, but he said, "'Men cannot be trusted in this kind of work like women. Every Fräulein in there feels that on the exactness and promptness of the despatch she is sending the fate of Germany may depend. They are more conscientious than men. You might watch here a month and never see one of them dozing.' We reached Offenberg by rail, thence on the top of a poor old stage, started across the country by way of Achern and Bühl, seeing in every village crowds of people in their picturesque Sunday costumes gathered around old trees, on which posters announced great victories at Wörth and Weisenberg. In the distance we saw the minister of Baden-Baden. Poor Baden! The little railway that had borne to it so many pleasure-seekers was now cut off. Five hours short of Rastatt, our vehicle broke down. We secured a wagon that Halstead found nondescript, but which I recognized as being one of the sort that used to carry wheat in old Virginia. Fifteen feet long, five feet wide, without springs, and with plank seats. It was about ten at night when we rumbled into Rastatt. It was silent as a tomb. Strasbourg, just across the river, was noisy until one o'clock. In all the German towns through which we passed, there was this sad silence, and it was reflected in every face. I telegraphed to Manton Marble, New York, that he might prepare for the defeat of France. The war minister of Baden warned us that the road on which we were about to enter was fearful lined with confusion and terror, every village crowded with the dead and wounded. On the way to Homburg we travelled on a long, crawling train of freight-wagons, seated on the floor with soldiers whose main talk was of the hoofed and horned Turcos. 
we entered France in a luxurious first-class car, the only fault of which was that after a good sleep we awoke before daybreak to find our compartment motionless on a side-track, and solitary. We were in little Folquemont, and in the still car began writing our narratives. At length our car moved on, and overtook the royal headquarters at Saint-Avold. The French, in evacuating Saint-Avold, had left there no food or drink, nor even a cigar. The curses heaped by the German soldiers on the French for carrying warfare to such an extreme of barbarity as the removal of tobacco may be imagined. An amusing little difficulty arose in our way. Halstead's first name was Marat, and had been given him in honour of the famous French soldier. His father had not foreseen that his son would one day be dependent on German favours in a war against France. There had been no way of escape from that unfortunate name, Murat. Had he only used the initial M, that must have stood for Monsieur, and indeed the first name had to be in the passport. This difficulty was enhanced by the disposition of the few French people remaining in Saint-Avold, to regard us, being without uniform, as countrymen. We wandered into the ancient church. In it were three men, fourteen women, and three children, French, while two German soldiers said their prayers near the door. The pale priest went through Mass, with a scarce audible voice, and the little assembly vanished like a mist. As we came out we saw the king at his window. While we were looking at the king there passed by us, and approached the royal headquarters a shapely giant in dark blue uniform faced with gold, swiftly recognized as Bismarck. Before entering the door he scanned the street. Among the uniforms were the two black streaks. The Chancellor held up his forefinger to us as we were moving off. We approached him, and he met us halfway. "'Where are you from, gentlemen?' he asked. "'And whither bound?' Woher kommen Sie, meine Herren, und wohin gehen Sie? I said, We are Americans, and are writing for the press of that country. He then said in English, You are welcome. We are very glad to have American writers among us, and with our army. The only thing that the officers will expect from you will be proper papers of legitimation. You have these? We showed them, and he said, Very well. The freedom of everything will be accorded you. Halstead said that the one thing he needed was a horse, for which he would gladly pay whatever was demanded. Bismarck said, I fear that is the one thing we cannot help you to. We are in France, a nation on horseback, and need every conveyance that can be obtained. It seems hard, said Halstead, that an editor who desires only a horse, and has money to pay for a horse, cannot get one. Bismarck responded with a smile, "'Have you not found it so in life, that what one most desires is just the thing he cannot obtain?' He presently added that if we would go to an officer whom he named, and show him our papers, he would assign us seats in some conveyance. Bismarck then inquired about our journey from Paris, and appeared surprised that we had come so quickly. When we told him that we had had such remarkable freedom among the forts at Strasbourg, he smiled, and we observed that he put no questions to us about them. He gave us several practical instructions. We would be quartered along with their officers and soldiers. 
and it might be in private houses. The German officers always took careful account of the services received from the French quarters, and would repay them. But it was important that we should not pay anything or give any fees, however small, to persons who waited on us or gave us food. The soldiers were unable to pay such fees, and if we should do so they might be jealous or suspicious that we were receiving favors. We must be careful not to carry any weapon, otherwise if taken by the French we might not be treated as correspondents. At any battle we should stay near the king, which would always be the safest place. We thanked him, bowed to the king, who returned the salute, adding a little gesture with his hand, and started off. But we were presently overtaken by General Kransky of the king's household, who told us that if we should be unable to procure food, it would be given us at the king's headquarters. The night at St. Avold was uncomfortable, the only bed in the hotel to be obtained being the edge of a billiard-table, the better portions of which were occupied by more fortunate sleepers. I was apparently the only one in the crowded room who could not sleep. About two in the night there was a knock at the door opening on the street. It was not answered, and was repeated several times with increasing loudness. At length I went out to the door, and a messenger thrust into my hand a large envelope, said something I did not understand, then disappeared quickly. By the light of a dim lamp in the hall, I made out the name of Moltke on it. Going softly upstairs, I found a German soldier sitting outside a bedroom door. I inquired for General Moltke's door, and was told it was there. I waited to see the soldier take the envelope into the room and return then went off to my billiard-table edge. My reader will no doubt ascribe this incredible incident to a nightmare. In the morning we sought the officer who was to aid us, and found a spectacled young man reading a volume of Shakespeare, English, who took us in charge. He was in command of a telegraph corps, and gave us a seat in his buggy. His function was to keep up a telegraphic connection between the king's headquarters and Germany. Our polite friend was eager to air his English. We several times found ourselves in an American atmosphere. We had been drawn the day before, successively by two engines, one labelled America, the other Philadelphia. And now as we started a troop passed, singing in English the John Brown song. They were Germans come from America to fight for the fatherland. On our journey through Nomény and Rémeilly de Pont-à-Mousson, we came upon some French tents. The officers there had been captured by the Prussians, just as they had sat down to a fine champagne dinner. I got out of the buggy to look at them, and felt pity at their doleful faces, especially that of one handsome young officer. On returning to my seat I missed my fine new overcoat. An order was given for an exchange of these French prisoners, and as they drove off I saw my overcoat on that same handsome French officer who had so moved my compassion. The movements were too quick to make any reclamation, and I had to put up with my loss. At Remilly our telegraph corps had to part from the main army and go across country. We had a small military escort, for we were in danger. It was beautiful weather, and we passed picturesque villages which on such fair Sundays once knew only gaiety, but were now silent as cemeteries. We had need of information as to the road we should take, but it was difficult to coax anyone close enough to give us direction. 
At one time we started on a road that would have led us upon the batteries of Metz. On one occasion seeing a pleasant-looking young woman sitting some twenty yards off at a door in a village, our leading officer called out, "'Come here, my dame!' The woman was frightened and began to retreat. "'Come, come!' said the officer. The woman began to weep. "'Have no fear, good woman. You shall not be harmed. I only wish to ask you the way.' The officer's voice was so pleasant that the woman became encouraged a little, and having approached very timidly still, gave the best direction she could in her confusion. Having received this, the officer said, "'Why did you weep when I spoke to you?' "'Oh, sir, I am in great fear. My poor husband has been taken away from me. I am alone.' The simple pathos with which she said this was what the most accomplished actress could not surpass. "'Your husband taken away,' said the officer. "'And by whom?' "'By the Prussians.' "'How taken? For what purpose?' "'To drive a wagon to Nomenie.' "'Ah!' said the officer, relieved. "'We have now and then to use the men as well as the resources of the neighborhood we are going through. But you need have no fear, whatever.' Your husband is much safer than if he were not working for us. He will be paid, and I promise you, my good woman, that he will return to you in a few days at most. You will find that the Prussians are by no means such barbarians as you have heard. The woman looked up with swimming, but now smiling, eyes. End of chapter 39, part 1